0: Hello Scandal Sheet listeners, my name is Thad Helsley and I'm here with my millennial co-host from the great state of Alaska, Ellie. Ellie, how are you? I
1: am fantastic. It's fall up here. You know, I think Alaska is one of the only places where you can comfortably consume a hot pumpkin spice latte when they're actually released from Starbucks. We've been, um, yeah, just embracing fall and it's been great.
0: Cool, cool. So, Ellie, we're doing something a little different today. On the occasion of a new biography, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, we're going to replay an episode we originally published last November. In fact, it was the episode just before you joined us uh, on the Thanksgiving episode. The subject of both the new book and our episode is The roller coaster Life and Perplexing Suicide. Celebrity chef, book author, and television star Anthony Bourdain. Now we're not shilling for Simon and Schuster, Ellie, and you and I. Full disclosure: have not read the book in advance, and and therefore cannot critique it either pro or con. However, 13 days before the release of this book, it's already a bestseller on Amazon with pre-orders. So. We're sort of going to hitch our wagon and
2: <laughs> on a
0: successful marketing campaign, and we cover the same material. So it seemed like a great time to do a replay. Do you agree?
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I think you and Maureen had such a great episode last November. I think it really reached out to a lot of people because, you know, you not only talked about Anthony Bourdain, who as a person, you know, his life really has a huge reach, We're talking about how he grew up very comfortably in an upper middle class. You know, he really crashed to rock bottom and then he became this like huge celebrity chef and author and TV personality. I mean, that kind of person has a huge reach on audience, huge socioeconomic group of people who can relate to him. And not only that, but then, I mean, look at all of us millennials. We love like, The Instagram travel hashtag Wonderlust. And like Anthony Bourdain was almost like one of those bulldozers who just kind of like plowed the path for so many young people to just go out and just really truly want to experience the world and so many really neat things about the world. So he has a huge reach. And you know, you and Maureen did a really fantastic episode about. His life and then also suicide prevention. I mean, now we're going into winter, especially up here in Alaska, it starts to get pretty dark. And, you know, I think it's it is important to raise awareness for, you know, mental health, suicide prevention. And then also, like we said, even though Anthony Bourdain has now been dead for over four years, somebody else is cashing in on him. So there's a lot more a lot more drama now that everybody gets to learn and we get to kind of dig our fingers into his last days in life with this new book.
0: Did that go too far? <laughs> well, no, no, no. You said you were into, you weren't really into him, Bourdain, when he was actually alive and broadcasting. Now, my daughter, who's almost your exact same age, she and her friends got into his second TV series on Travel Channel called No Reservations that started in two thousand five. Now, so they were they would not miss an episode. Now, that would seem to confirm his multi-generational appeal, which you were just talking about. I mean, how many shows would my 85-year-old mother and my 12-year-old daughter both love at the same time? Not many. So, <laughs> like you said, he died in 2018, and, and, and then I think you said that, you know, uh, when we talked about this episode, you, you sort of dipped your feet in the, in the Bourdain waters, and now now what do you think?
1: I mean, I I have to defend the fact that I wasn't into the show, because growing up, we didn't have cable TV, and we were pretty limited on what TV we could watch. And then, you know, going into college, I didn't really watch TV. And then after that, I was pretty you know, like just like this poor, you know, young floating individual. And I think I just had Netflix or something. So I really didn't have a huge TV influence growing up. But the more I watch about Anthony Bourdain, the more I'm like, wow, I really need to go back and watch some of his stuff. Because I think it's it's a way for so many people to live, you know, vicariously through him, right, and see so many cultures of the world and so many places in the world without actually having to travel there. And, you know, he really does a great job of just, you know, advertising the human experience and just really trying to get to the bottom of what everybody is living, you know, their their life situation around the world. And so all of his shows have now been added to my extensive list of things that I need to watch. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the documentary. And I feel like in this case, I'm actually going to have to start working backwards. Like, I think I'm just going to work from the end of his life and then just start going backwards to maybe some of his earlier stuff.
0: Yeah, well, 17 years of shows, that's a lot to get through. And then if you start with the books, then you've got uh, three or four to do there as well. He also wrote a lot of fiction before he became famous, which uh, if you get into it, it's notable. It's usually about... A guy that seems kind of like him in a New York restaurant, you know, that's run by it's just a front for the mafia to launder money or something like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there.
1: And I thought it was so interesting how he actually self-funded some of his book tours. You know, and they were total flops at the beginning. But you know, he was that passionate about writing. He was such a passionate writer that he even just like self funded. You know, you must be talking
0: about his fiction work, right? I think,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, he was passionate. He was he was definitely wanted. That's really what he wanted to do is be a writer, not be a TV star. And you know, when they brought the money, he was like, okay, he seems like a natural. And maybe that's part of the pressure that Maureen, I should, I should mention you brought up Maureen's name. Maureen Desmond was the guest of this episode that we're replaying. She's a grief counselor here in Northern Virginia. She has a business called Navigating Through Loss. So she's a professional grief counselor. So I had invited her to, to talk about the subject. And she's, of course, deals with people who um, have lost loved ones, suicide, cancer or many, many other things. So she was a great, she was a great co-host or a great guest.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think even just with the book coming out, some of these revelations, I, I don't know about people who really identified with Anthony Bourdain. I mean, there's always this tricky relationship between celebrities and their fans, right? Because right. you can be a huge fan of a celebrity, but you know, really that celebrity might not even know that you exist. And And the reality is that a lot of fans don't know who the celebrity truly is as a person. And so I'm really interested to see how this book shapes his really hardcore fans' opinion of him because some of his final texts that were released by his former wife And, you know, like mother of his daughter and his confidant later in life, even after their relationship had ended, he was talking about how, you know, he hated his life, he hated his fame, and he hated his fans. So it's really that catch-22 of fame where you can't become famous and make an influence on the world like he did without this level of personal sacrifice. But had he never experienced that, he would have never had the the influence that he did.
0: Well... Uh, And I'm curious to see that too, because I think there's a lot of things that he wrote where he, he loved his fans. I mean, because remember he didn't become famous until he was in his forties. So he was just a regular person. So he saw celebrity the way you and I do, you know, it was just, you know, and he loved movies and there are a lot of customers would come to the restaurants who were celebrities, but you're not. I mean, if you became a celebrity tomorrow, I mean, you would probably appreciate it in a very different way than somebody who's been a celebrity for decades, you know, the Beyoncé's of the world or the Taylor Swift's or the Kanye West's or whatever. He was a latecomer to the table, and maybe it did become a burden because he was not just a, a, a star of United States TV. He was being broadcast when he got to CNN, those six seasons, into 100 different countries. He could walk down the street in a village in Saudi Arabia and be recognized. Now that's, that's a pain in the ass. So (laughs) I can can see, you know, and always like, okay, I've got to do the autograph. And I I guess, you know, different stars have different standards for what they're, they are or aren't willing to do, or they have disguises or or whatever. You can't just walk into a Seven Eleven and buy, you know, some gum or something. (laughs)
1: I know. Well, and as someone who had really shifted from just being like a celebrity chef into being this TV personality who helps connect various audiences throughout the world, teach them about different cultures and relationships, I think it's harder and harder to maintain that goal when all of a sudden everyone in the world knows who you are. Like you said, you can't even go into 7-Eleven and buy a pack of gum without yeah, people recognizing you and wanting autographs. So how do you really truly start to connect with people on a very basic human level when you have that celebrity status? But he had already shifted his focus over to that lane. So how do you start to backtrack from that? And how do you start to really reconnect with with the actual basic level of, of humanity?
0: Right. So that's what this episode is about, ladies and gentlemen. So I hope you will appreciate this replay, and we'd love to hear from you if you have any questions. And enjoy!
3: May 20th, 2013. Celebrity chef and television personality. Anthony Bourdain accepts a Peabody Award for his CNN series, Parts Unknown. Created in 1940 by the National Association of Broadcasters, This prestigious award, which is comparable to an Oscar in motion pictures or a Tony in theater, recognizes excellence in broadcasting in both the radio and television mediums. A travel or food oriented program had never been recognized up to this time. Uh, Thank you very much. The Peabody board were incredibly
0: honored and grateful, particularly in the light of of the really amazing and inspiring stories and projects being uh, honored here today. Uh, There is no story
3: uh, on my show, there's no way I could tell these. Look, we we, we ask very simple questions. What, what makes you happy? What do you eat? What do you like to cook? And everywhere in the world we go
0: and ask these very simple questions. Uh, we tend to get some really astonishing
3: answers. Thank you so much. Ordain was clearly at the peak of his career and individual happiness in 2013. An undisputed critical success, he produced a top-rated weekly television show, translated and distributed to almost 100 countries around the globe. He became almost a household name in nations as far away as Vietnam, Saudi Arabia, parts of Africa and South America. His happy, second marriage produced a daughter, a But then, only five years later, tragedy struck. We have some terribly sad news uh, to report this morning, heartbreaking and devastating. World-renowned chef, best-selling author, award-winning host of Parts Unknown. And our friend, Anthony Bourdain, has died. The last five years on CNN, Tony traveled the globe doing what he loved most, uncovering little-known places, exploring food, and celebrating life and diverse cultures. Let us tell you what we know so far this morning about this. Our senior media correspondent, Brian Stelter, host of Reliable Sources, joins us. Brian, what have we learned?
0: We're just learning that celebrity... Uh, chef and award winning celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain has died at the age of 61. And CNN has confirmed that the cause of death was suicide. He was found unresponsive in a hotel room in France this morning. He was the uh, Emmy winning uh, Peabody award winning uh, host of CNN's
3: uh, Parts Unknown. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy.
2: Celebrity gossip.
3: Murder.
4: UFOs, Crooked Officials The Occult
0: Assassination Courtroom Drama rape, Corporate Scams Scandal Sheets! (laughs) Hello everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet, your source for exhaustive investigations into anything socially deviant, scientifically unexplainable, horrifically sinister, and, if we get lucky, criminal. My name is Thad Helsley. And I am pleased to welcome today Maureen Desmond. Maureen is the founder of Navigating Through Loss, a coaching and consulting service that guides and supports people through grief and mourning. Maureen also hosts her own podcast called Giving Grief a Voice. It hasn't launched just yet, but keep an ear and an eye open for it. And as usual, I'm also joined by our brilliant artificial intelligence engine, Bernice.
2: Since we are discussing mental health in today's episode, I promised my therapist I would restrain myself from calling you a bonehead, D-bag, or a complete moron. (laughs) Good job
0: working those in, Bernice. You're welcome. So, Maureen, thank you for joining me today. I know I did a relatively short bio of you. Is there anything else you want to share about your career?
4: Well... I will say that, you know, the reason that I'm doing this, I have this business navigating through loss is because of my own experiences with loss. Pretty traumatic in my immediate family. Three different losses, three different times. And so it really had an impact on my life. So it was always important to me to try to help others along the way. So whether I was doing this that, that I'm currently doing or doing my career, which was actually in media sales for 25 to 30 years. Right. I was always cognizant of those who were going through something tough. And so now I've made that my mission in life to help others through loss.
0: Right. Well, you know, I thought you'd be a great guest for this episode. I know, And I know you told me that you're not an expert on suicide or suicide victims and their families per se. But, but as you say, you are extremely experienced in consulting on grief and, and loss of many, many kinds. So it still seemed like, because what Anthony Bourdain is we're going to cover here, was going through was a lot of tough stuff that led him to the road that he eventually came to.
4: Yeah, that's for sure.
0: So our subject today, Anthony Bourdain, just real quick, was a veteran of two divorces. And before he became famous, he was a two-decade heroin and cocaine addict. And his dependencies on drugs at a young age gradually led his promising career as a New York City fine dining chef, plunging into poverty and humiliation. So Maureen, this guy's grief profile has got to be among the worst you see on an average day, or at least up there, right? And, and importantly, I think his woes in life were almost entirely self-imposed.
4: Yes, I do think that. I do. You know, I have watched the movie, The Road Runner of his and and read some of his books. And he definitely appears to have some addictive personalities. I'm no expert, but just from his um, two decades of being an addict, I would assume so. And Anthony is is one of those unique people overall. I think, and and a celebrity that he is likable, and he's he he doesn't give up. He keeps going, even if he is, you know, doing these three-day binges and then coming back to and, you know, not sleeping. And I, he's just one of those unique people that is, I always think, what is he running from or what is he running to? I find people like him quite interesting because, you know, would we ever really know who he truly is? And sometimes I even think, just, what are the demons that he has? Does he have demons or did he just, he's just re- rushed into life and that's how he has lived?
0: Yeah, I mean, it is, it is bizarre because he grows up in an upper middle class family in the late 50s in this leafy, dreamy suburb of New York City. So it sounds like... The Wonder Years, you know, TV show from the 90s. His parents have great jobs, he's sent to private schools, he's socialized at every possible level as a bourgeois member of the white American establishment, right? <laughs> but by his own admission, he says even as a child he has a criminal bent in his earliest memories. And who knows if he's just creating a persona and a brand for himself, you know, that we're at, you know maybe he's exaggerating everything. But I mean, there certainly is corroborating evidence to show, you know, a lot of what he's saying. I mean, so, I mean, does that happen a lot in reality where a family, like a really well-educated, affluent, upper middle-class cam- family can have like a true runt of the litter? Does that happen in real life?
4: I mean, I guess I would say, I would say yes, and then there's no. I mean, you're right. On paper, the fa- his family sounds... Amazing, but we still don't know all everything. And when you said criminal bent, I thought, oh my goodness. The first thing I thought of was, you know, we all have this inner voice that says, don't do that, or do that, or and what do we listen to? And and is it it's our conscious, it's consciousness. And you know, if we have a voice that we sort of is a negative voice. And we don't really like ourselves. And, you know, I keep, can I say cuss words on this podcast?
0: Yeah. In fact, I have us rate his ads explicit.
4: (laughs) I was going to say, does he want to be better, but he can't be? And he keeps fucking up every time he does something or he's had all these opportunities. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but he's had all these opportunities in his life where he could have started a restaurant with the, bunch of guys and they all just did drugs all the time and and it failed so could you you know do you kind of have regrets and i wonder about even his life maybe he didn't want to go to the best schools there are people that don't go to college because they're not college people and they their brains and minds are different Everyone's different. So that's what makes it difficult, too.
0: Right. And, you know, we should backtrack a little because I never even gave Bernice a chance to kind of give us sort of the top line on the first half of his life. So, Bernice, could you do that for us?
2: Certainly. Anthony Michael Bourdain was born in 1956. A product of private schools, he worked in seafood restaurants in Provincetown, Massachusetts, while attending Vassar, which inspired his decision to pursue cooking as a career. Bourdain attended the Culinary Institute of America, graduating in 1978. From there he went on to run various restaurant kitchens in New York City. In 1998, Bourdain became an executive chef at Brasserie Layal. He first became nationally known for his best-selling book Kitchen Confidential, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly in the year 2000. The great financial and critical success of this book essentially launched his television career.
0: It's weird because when you see him on TV or when he was on TV and you read his books, he's obviously an extraordinarily literate individual. I mean, the allusions, all the cultural references. I mean, this guy was not a high school dropout, no possible way. He was extraordinarily well-read. So um, he was going to, what, Vassar or something? But he switched and started going to the Culinary Institute of America after he started becoming a dishwasher at some like greasy seafood place in uh, Provincetown, Massachusetts, which was sort of a weird job for a kid like that. Right. From New York City. Yeah. You know, but that, but it was a great place to be a drug addict <laughs> 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 to be bad. And,
4: and right. And sometimes you're making those decisions because of that.
0: So he does go to CIA. He does. He's clearly a talented chef. Like, as you were saying, he and his friends were involved in a lot of New York restaurants, but they went deeper and deeper and deeper into drugs. And he finally hits rock bottom. You know, he describes himself as like one of these guys in a parking lot in soho sitting on a blanket selling like his old records like anything he has of any kind of value just so he can buy heroin so that's pretty much close to rock bottom Mm. but then he suddenly makes a decision to reform himself without any intervention By an outside, by a family member or an institution or jail or rehab or anything else like that. He just does it by himself. Is that, does that happen a lot?
4: Great question. So, you know, I'm going to kind of attribute this to some of the work I do with um, people who are going through grief. Please. Especially in that first year, you know, you've lost someone. And you really don't know what, how you're going to get through the day, a week, a month. It's really hard to look out into the future because you're in such pain. And and so I kind of, when I hear that and I think, yes, you know what? He can be that rock bottom and still have made it into this, amazing restaurant, because good people are out there and come along. And I think it's one of those things. It's when people are grieving, they say, how am I going to get through it? There are things that happen that you're not expecting. And there are supportive people out there that come into our lives just when we need them the most. And we just have to notice them. We have to, we have to realize wow, why is this man wanting me to interview for a position in this restaurant or however you call it Mm -hmm. as a chef? And I think Anthony is a likable guy, and I think that he had the ability for people to see his passion and his compassion in life. He had a drive for life. And so he was given chances, and I think that's where Anthony may have struggled a little bit. He was given chances by these people, and then he had to go into his head and go, okay, do not mess this up. Do not do drugs or, you know, whatever it is. And if you have an addictive personality, that's even more difficult. It's, it's like, d- did he want it? Did he believe it? Could he do it? And I think that that may have been a struggle that he had all of his life in different situations but he had some people that believed in him and they should have because he is he's he's a smart man when i when you watch him on tv he's likable he's kind of he kind of is a little bit of an asshole in some regard too <laughs> but it's this likable asshole like okay <laughs> he stands up for what he believes that's kind of the person i see in him so i don't see him being that bum on the street. I just, you can see how he became successful.
0: Yeah, and you were talking about how, you know, cooking was maybe a diversion, because he did always say, or at least he says in his books, his real ambition was always to be a writer, not to be a TV personality, to be a writer, and especially a writer of fiction. And he had actually, before the book that made him famous, Kitchen Confidential, he had published three novels uh, and they were all about like guys in the restaurant business in New York City, by the way. <laughs> but that was something he, he knew about, right? Working with the mafia and all this other stuff. But they weren't very successful. He didn't really break out or anything. I mean, they were well reviewed, but it didn't make him any money. So he continued to, to have to be a chef. But then I guess he wrote an article for the New Yorker and I think his mother was an editor there and she got help get it published and that was the sort of the basis for Kitchen Confidential. You know, it was like the underbelly of the New York food scene and then he, someone called him and paid him to write a book and then he was like, of course, I'll take that money. Didn't think anything was going to happen and then and poof, it's all of a sudden an international bestseller it propels him into television and he reluctantly accepts he doesn't really want to be a TV show guy uh, right and he's actually very shy i'm told by multiple sources i'm reading i mean his natural you know level set i mean even though he's a television personality is to be a shy guy mm-hmm. you know he's not the kind of guy that would walk up to a a girl in a bar and strike up a conversation or something uh, but it's it's weird so you know success in in a way so so You know, from that being the guy sitting cross-legged in Soho, selling all your possessions, to all of a sudden you're a TV star, and then poof, his wife divorces him, and then he plunges again to the very brink of the abyss. Is that like a pattern? Mm
4: Mm-hmm yes i mean again, i mean it's no. definitely
0: loss right i mean he divorced his one and only wife who had been with since high school right and and she divorced him you know she did not want this lifestyle yeah and okay. by the way when he got off heroin she stayed on it and that was uh, all of a sudden they didn't have anything in common or <laughs> not as much in common anymore
4: wow yes and that is that is a pattern it, it's that is the story of life in some ways, not his exactly because no one, this is all sort of like, some of it is luck, you know, that came up along the way. Um. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so much is yeah. luck. Yeah. But yeah. his, his pattern of the ups and downs is sort of, you know, a grieving process, you know, you, you, you're going through your life and then boom, someone is gone and it messes up with your familiar pattern and your normal way of behavior. And that's what I think people don't understand is grief is any change in your normal pattern that causes a reaction because it's, it's just upended your life in some way. And sometimes it's very drastic upending and sometimes it's not as, Drastic, but it's still major. You know, I think about people who move from their home and they don't really want to, but they have to, or a job loss or a job change, even empty nesters. You know, people go through these changes in their lives. And so I say that to bring it back to this where, yeah, his wife asks for a divorce and that kind of stuff can throw an addict whoosh right down into the streets again. And okay. so, what is pretty amazing is how he kept pulling himself back up. Um, it is, and it forgotten. is, a,
0: that is the amazing part, isn't it?
4: Yeah, he, and I he just is on this you, roller
0: coaster ride,
4: a, a big roller coaster. And I will, be, I believe, like what you had said, he. He doesn't want, he didn't want to be in sensation. And, and I think that deep down, he probably maybe even felt, because this is part of life too, like a little guilty. Like, do I deserve this? And look at all these millions of people who love me and think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I'm a complete mess (laughs) inside. So again, I think it goes back to his inner voice himself. Does he love himself? How can these people love him when he despises himself? And I'm not saying that that's exactly how he felt, but maybe. And so how do you live with that balance, within that balance?
0: Right, right. But when he was in that period, immediately following his divorce, he later wrote a book, which was a follow-up to Kitchen Confidential, which sort of picks him up at the beginning of his fame, and it was called Medium Raw. There's a scene in early in that book where he describes the terrible sort of depression he was in after the divorce, and he is in a very suicidal mood, but on a nightly basis, he actually, you know, flirts with doing insane things like driving his car off a cliff while being completely almost blackout drunk. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just, com- mm. just completely reckless behavior. And this is over eight years before he actually does commit suicide mm. but at this point he was at like the second rock bottom <laughs> there was yeah. the first rock bottom in soho this is the second rock bottom in the caribbean yes um, but the amazing thing like you said was like and then he boom he came back up all of a sudden he meets this amazing girl and they get married and this most this unlikely guy who is sort of like the enemy of the bourgeois establishment becomes Mr. Dad. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. He's married to a great woman. He's got this beautiful daughter. All of a sudden, you know, there's like pictures of them, you know, playing with like toys and all these different you know, you're like, that's Anthony Bourdain? I know, I know. He's father knows best, Anthony Bourdain. Yes. <laughs> You know, and he even stops, you know, even when he got off drugs, he was still smoking three packs a day and he was still drinking. So he was, you know, he was the the legal stuff he was still doing. But once he became a dad, got rid of the smoking. Mm -hmm. The only time he would drink would be like when he was on camera because he still had to maintain that brand of a guy who was always getting drunk on TV. But (laughs) uh, that was part of his brand, right? Yeah. But he had never exercised a day in his life. But his his wife got him into jujitsu which is an ext- you know actual martial arts which mm-hmm. is a lot more than just doing you know jogging around the neighborhood so he got in fantastic health he had six pack abs he was always showing them off he you know he was at the the peak you know at that point Mm -hmm. in time right it's just like he had completely reformed himself he's got a beautiful family I'm making more money than I could have ever imagined in my life I'm internationally famous which might be a pain in the ass but okay you know because everybody everybody in the world recognizes you (laughs) you go to Saudi Arabia and they stop you in the street right so (laughs) which you know that's weird but I mean and then and then something happens Mm -hmm. what happens he blows everything up
4: Mm-hmm.
0: He walks away. Why, why do you think? Yeah. What did you sense when you were reading all the stuff? What did you... Or when you saw the, you said you watched the documentary. Yes. So just so our listeners know, there was a a feature-length documentary called Roadrunner that came out this summer, just a couple, three months ago, built with interviews of all the people that knew him and loved him and everything else to kind of describe what was going on. And none of them really had a great explanation for why, when everything was so and so going so great, again, this is like the third, let's, okay, wow, I've been happy for all this time. I better hit rock bottom again. I know it. (laughs) It's I know, terrible. It,
4: it is, and it's the, it's a little bit like I'll go back to the word demon. It's a little bit of the demons from the past. Is it? Is, I don't know. I call. I also thought of when you were just talking, like he, the rambling man. I mean, he, some people also once things get a little too settled, people want that chaos again. And there's, you know, as you're talking about it, I can even feel. I can feel the calmness that he had in his life. And, you know, this wonderful woman in the documentary, she's so sweet. And the the relationship, like you had said, with his daughter was so beautiful. And I thought, oh, I love this movie. This is this must be how it's going to end. You know, (laughs) (laughs) right, right. um, So so I, I really do think, too, maybe it's part of an addiction in his life. Maybe it's some of the drugs that have altered his decision-making skills. We don't know what years and years of heroin and cocaine and, and all kinds of things can do. Maybe he just was like, uh, no, nope. life is too good, too settled. Let's get some more chaos in it. And that's not abnormal.
0: Oh, it isn't? Okay. Mm-mm.
4: And again, even through grief, we go through these periods of, I'm going to be reckless because why did this happen to me? Why was this person or this thing or this job or taken from me? And so recklessness is sort of a a short-term behavior that happens when you're grieving. And so this is another one of those blips for him.
0: Well, do you think it's is too simplistic to s- simply call it a um, midlife crisis thing? Midlife. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I I always think of that as happening to somebody in their forties. This guy is in his late fifties, but maybe if he's like sort of a late bloomer, <laughs> just yeah. in general, looking at his whole life, maybe that's sort. Of, it was like, hey, man, I'm going to go out and you know buy a sports car and get the young girlfriend and just screw everything up, you know. You know, blow, you know, maybe is it, is that too simplistic an explanation?
4: I think it's an, a yes. And I think that it could be that. Um, I think that some people are in a midlife crisis their entire lives. (laughs) I I don't think that we can even put it into buckets and judge it. Maybe he never really liked that life, even though he was successful. And I'm sure there were good parts of it. Maybe it was just still not what he wanted. And, you know, meeting this new gal, maybe he, love happens. Love happens. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter when, how, what, if there's a connection. And it seems that he was pretty smitten when he kind of started moving forward with this other relationship.
0: Okay, so you're talking about, you just introduced our uh, next topic. Oops. Uh, His femme, that's okay. okay. His femme fatale girlfriend, or became the femme fatale, Asia Argento. And Bernice, could you give us a little background on her so our listeners know who the heck we're talking about?
2: My pleasure. Asia Argento, born in 1975, is an Italian actress and filmmaker. She has received mainstream success, as an actress especially, and has received several accolades. Her notoriety increased in 2017 when she became an early sexual assault accuser against movie producer Harvey Weinstein, claiming she was raped by him when she was 21. Her initial public efforts inspired numerous A-list actresses to come forward and share similar stories against both Weinstein and other male producers. She became a leader in the Number Me Too movement. But her credibility in this space began to crumble in August 2018, when the New York Times detailed allegations that Argento sexually assaulted actor Jimmy Bennett in 2013, when he was 17 and she was 37, Argento and Bourdain began to date in 2016 and became a couple. There was 25 year difference in their ages. I
0: don't, you know, I think it would probably be too. I'm, 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 I'm a few years younger than he was when he actually did this. I'm not sure I could actually bring myself, even if I was rich and famous, to you know, run around with someone, you know, 20, 25 years younger than myself, just because I would be, not that I wouldn't be capable, my I mean, libido isn't capable of it. I think I would just be too ashamed. I'm too socialized to, you know, to, to behave like Donald Trump or something, mm-hmm. you know, and my own daughter is in her 20s. What would she, she would disown me. But then again, who knows? If I was rich and famous, maybe I'd be thrown caution to the wind. I don't know. <laughs> but... You know, because the thing was, as we said before, the guy was very monogamous. He was not, even when he was rich and famous for 10 15 years the women he was with he was with you'd never see him on a tabloid magazine with a model or somebody like that mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. he was just you know, you know and it's not and, and the and the two women that he was married to um, you wouldn't describe them as supermodels they were just regular ordinary girl next door type people mm-hmm. right they didn't look extraordinary or anything like that so and and I always thought he was a pretty handsome man but you know he did never seem to take advantage of that
4: yeah. I I think that you know maybe she fit into this this life that he now had. This this celebrity. Maybe he for the first time had kind of more of a connection to somebody who was also in the limelight and beautiful and vivacious and you know maybe he kind of hit this thing where it was like I don't know how I don't know what life looks like now, but this person is so fun. And we just don't know those things either. And we, anyone can fall in love and age doesn't matter. You know, anyone can fall into that. And sometimes, sometimes, yeah, maybe it isn't for all the right reasons. Um, But if two people meet each other and, and they have sound minds and they make a decision to be together and respect each other, and by all means... Why not, I would
0: okay, you would I was going to ask you that, and of course, you don 't have to answer, but I was going to say, <laughs> would you go out with somebody significantly older or significantly younger than yourself, even if it was a twenty five year old Maureen you know going out with a sixty year old whoever yeah, you would because you believe that love conquers all
4: i I believe sort of what I had said about if it's two people that are making this decision. For their right, their right reasons, and they are having a good time, and they're not hurting anyone else, and that's the decision that they make, we make, I make. Yes, I think that all of that is fine. And and again, there are people that do these things for other reasons, like oh, I'm I'm 20 and this person's 80 and he's got a gazillion dollars. I mean, right. we see those things in our faces right. a lot too. Through it, we do celebrity. So but there are others that can do this and they're not doing it for that. So, I think that there's a yes and again.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and I don't want to play up the the gold digger narrative too much because I mean, she was famous in her own right. She was an actress and a director and she, you know, she did a lot of other things. It wasn't like she was like, you know, somebody that he just, you know, found in a in a Denny's or something, you know, one of those stories. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like Dorothy like Dorothy Stratton, you know, the the Star 80 girl. You're a little more forgiving than I am, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> to me, to me she seems sort of like a Yoko Ono, you know, or at least what Oko Yoko Ono was accused as of sort of breaking up the Beatles. You know, getting between everybody.
4: Yes. And that's a really good point, because going back to The Roadrunner, his closest friends and people that worked closely with him for years and years and years and years said, she's changed him. He's different. Right. And and I don't I don't think they got into detail of what different meant, but almost like, this isn't the Anthony Bourdain we know. And so... Well, yeah. The, and, bu- the and-
0: books that were written by his friends... Were a lot more detailed than the documentary was, okay. um, Because they were a lot longer; they were uh, complete books. Some of the people, uh, actually, everybody in the documentary, were in these books too. But they were able to speak at much greater length because it wasn't ninety minutes long; it was you know three hundred pages long. But he would like he ended up. She started directing his shows. Right. So the his own people that had worked for him for almost 20 years, she was replacing him with her. And then at her insistence, she he fired some people that he had worked with his entire career that were like his closest, like his cinematographer.
4: Okay, got it. That makes fired. Yeah, I mean,
0: stuff like that, where everybody who knew him was like. That is nuts. Yeah. You know, I mean, you wouldn't fire your, you know, there's no way, you know, Obama would fire Biden or something like that. Right. You know, just, just on a whim, you know, because, because Nancy Pelosi, God, fire that guy. Right,
4: right. So, <laughs> yeah, that, so, that's So, I a mean, great that was point. very
0: unusual behavior for him because he was, he was intensely, intensely loyal to his people. Just like he was a monogamous. I mean, all his colleagues said, I mean, he was just, he would do anything for the people that worked for him and worked with him.
4: Yes. And People that's, loan them
0: money, blah, 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 anything, anything.
4: Yeah, that's a big shift. That is a shock. That's a shock to go into that direction. But again, if we go back to his behavior patterns and his addictions, he may have been now addicted to this gal. I mean, he, he may, be, may have been completely addicted. And that is a, that is a real thing, too yeah and get a little too if he's that that smitten he might get really smothering he might lose all his friendships and everybody in his life because this is it this is all of it just like an addiction to heroin right you oh. you love your family you love your friends but i'm into the heroin right now
0: you what you say that you're right though some of these other books do say that he was, was like a a high school kid, first romance—you know, puppy love. He couldn't. People speculated after the fact that to her, he probably started to—you know—this really confident, funny, cynical dude. All of a sudden, became this needy little schoolboy, and I bet that turned her off. You know, I mean, all of a sudden it was like, oh my god, what this dude? You know, yes, I'm not his mother, man. So
4: right, right. And you know what? Another thing I I wanted to... This kind of just popped into my head, too. So wasn't she part of a big part of the Me Too movement coming out because of Harvey Weinstein?
0: She was one of the very first women to come out publicly to say that she had been raped by Harvey Weinstein. Uh, And I think it was at Cannes. So... But And once she did that, because, I mean, these rumors had been circulating forever, but nobody really wanted to go on the record, get in front of the camera, go on 60 Minutes or whatever. She came out, and then that just... Knock down the dominoes. All of a sudden you had, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and all these other notable people going on the record. And that's, and it was what triggered all the investigations, the criminal investigations into his behavior and everything else. So yeah, she, you could call her a founding member of the Me Too movement. I mean, she was almost the Rosa Parks of the Me Too movement in a sense. Right.
4: And so, and I say that because didn't he, really stand behind her and start coming out as more like as a supporter for her, almost jumping into a little bit. I don't know if that's political. People can consider that political, but he kind of took a stance around it and really supported her. And, and it almost seemed a little bit out of left field to me, even just seeing that part. I don't know if I read it or if I saw that in the documentary, it's all running together, but I was like, wow, this doesn't seem like something he would do. I would, I could kind of see him in the background of that and supporting her, but he really came out about it with her. Too. He so. did
0: he got very, very aggressive, I think it may be in the documentary and and you know he would go on shows like Oprah and stuff like that, and then he would friends of his career long friends like Mario Batali, who was really big in the food network, they were lifelong friends and the thing was with Mario Batali, you know it was legitimate i i 've got a book on him that was written. You know, decades ago, and it just, it, it it openly talks about, you know, the way he treated women in his restaurants, slapping him on the rear end, touching all the inappropriate places, you know, cheating right and left. And, and, but I mean, it was completely tolerated. So it couldn't have been, and it was open. It wasn't in secret or anything. And Tony must have known about that for that behavior for so, so long. But once this happened, he completely disowned Batali. Mm. and and other people that he knew that there had been so you're right it's almost like he became an evangelical me tour Mm -hmm. you know i'm one of the men who is going to come out and i am just going after this thing like crazy Yep. so
4: and another maybe addictive you know kind of really got connected into it and and i think there's another piece to it too i hate i that i keep using the word addiction or addicted. And I don't mean it in a judgmental way, but also he, he he was so loyal to the, the things that he did, his marriages, he was loyal, or at least we assume they were, you know, like you had said, he's, when he gets behind something, he really gets behind it. And he has passion and compassion and loyalty to it. And right, that's, a significant piece too as we kind of try to figure out why he left this earth the way he did you know it makes me so sad
0: well do you want to talk about the the triggering event yeah and Bernice maybe you can help describe that for us
2: in June 2018 photos of Anthony Bourdain's girlfriend Asia Argento appeared on the cover of multiple tabloid magazines in intimate postures with a younger man Friends and colleagues reported he was humiliated by the publicity and plunged into depression. Within five days, Bourdain had committed suicide by hanging himself from a hotel shower curtain rod, one of his standard jokes for decades.
4: Oh, that just, I just got a cold chill. You know, I mean, I just, I, I have a hard time comprehending suicide. I always have. And... It really comes down to that moment, you know, like, why, 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 what got you there? What made you think that right in that moment, this was what you were going to do? I really struggle with that. And I have friends who have lost people in their families to suicide. And it's, it's never everyone's. Experience is different you know either there's a note or there's not a note
0: and there was no note
4: and there was no note
0: and the autopsy said everybody said, okay you know what he was having a really bad trip and he just he didn't even know what he was doing the 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 toxicology report the autopsy said no illegal drugs you know he may have had an antidepressant and a couple of glasses of wine and that was it So it wasn't, you couldn't say this was like a Michael Jackson thing or Whitney Houston thing or something Mm like that, where accidental OD or craziness. This was a premeditated, deliberate action on his part. Mm. But like you said, there was no note. And that, a lot of people have said that was very curious because maybe an average person, I mean, I always read, you tell me if I'm wrong, that most people do leave a note, even if it's just a few sentences to express why they've made this choice. And here you've got one of the most accomplished popular writers uh, in the English language and doesn't even leave one sentence, like goodbye, cruel world or something. Just boom, he's gone.
4: Right, right. That's odd. Yeah, and I, I don't know enough to say whether it's common to leave a note or not, but i I think sometimes people leave that note because they really they love everybody in their life. They 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 are apologizing almost in the note to say please don't think this was you. It was all me.
3: Mm.
0: And
4: I think that that is that helps them before they do it, I would assume. And then I I don't know. I can't speak for someone that's getting the note for, on the other side, but right. I think that that kind of gives some meaning to those who are left behind. And so when there's not a note, and that's the first question that many people ask when somebody dies from suicide, no matter what, like people just, was there a note, you know, and it's awful. Like you would never want to say that or ask that of somebody that was affected by it because it's just such a strong, like it doesn't matter. They're gone, Right. And so I, I've had to deal with that on some of my grief coaching and such, but, you know, going back again to him, I mean, he, if he was really so in love and addicted or connected or whatever we want to call it with his girlfriend, yes, I think, I mean, he was just crushed and you know to see pictures and knowing how loyal he was and probably thinking gosh you know i we, i thought we had this beautiful thing and who knows if those pictures were before after during the time they were together i don't know all of the specifics on that but you know he he was betrayed, and it was just too much. And I'm not saying that was the reason. I'm just saying that's one one piece.
0: Well, no, you bring up... Because, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, maybe he. there was an aspect of him, despite his intelligence and his talent, maybe he was just emotionally immature. I mean, his first wife, they'd been together since high school. They get divorced, and that's when he was suicidal the first time, right after that divorce in the Caribbean. And... Then his second, and then he had a second wife. But it's not like this guy was a big dating guy. You know, when I think of my life and all the gazillions of girls I've gone out, you know, like getting dumped is just another day in the life. You know, I was like, suicide is the last thing I think. I was like, well, I'll just crack open a beer and get over it.
4: So was, <laughs> Wait, what kind of beer is it? No. Yeah, right. <laughs> is it Bud Light or is it a, a Guinness Dark? It's
0: Miller Light, probably. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like uh, incomprehensible to me that, that, that so you could do that uh, over being humiliated by a girl or something. but I'm not looking at it from a guy who's just like, okay, I've only dated like four people in my whole life. So if that's the case, if that's actually the case.
4: Right, right. Yeah. And and it brings up what what did he live with depression? Was that one of the things he was running from? Because if you're kind of talking in 2010 and who knows before that and you're doing these crazy things, now obviously high on stuff, whatever, and you know that if you don't put your hand, hands back on the wheel, you could go over a cliff speeding down the road. That, yeah, that's not, that's not kind of like what most people would do, I would think. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's this side of There's it an
0: understatement was... of the episode. <laughs>
4: I'm think sorry. My grandmother
0: because would There could go be a lot of people of to cliff. do this. I just <laughs> don't know.
4: I'm am try- I'm tiptoeing here. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to speak like oh anyway. But yes, he he was living on the edge and maybe that was that edge for him. That one thing was that one more stone dropped onto this Mountain of stones that just rumbled apart. You just, we just don't know those things, and that's what's so. That's why people get so caught up in in suicide and wanting to understand it. You know, will we ever understand it?
0: I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a mental illness in general. I mean, how, decades ago, did your job even exist? Was there such a thing as a professional grief? counselor or something like that i mean people didn't i mean any kind of uh depression everything else was was sort of considered you know what it was looked down upon right it was it was not understood it was it was it was scandalous to be somebody who needed any kind of mental treatment right i mean it's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest or something wow this guy's acting weird let's lock him up (laughs) and drug him out and you know and just let it you know let the thing burn out
4: Yes, and that's a great that's a great point, is that absolutely. I don't know when mental illness started becoming more of a mainstream topic and discussion. I think it gets more and more so that way. Um, and then you add in the pandemic that we just went through, and mm. everyone kind of understands now what it feels like to have your familiar patterns of behaviors get knocked off course. You know, no one can say, oh, my life didn't change one bit. Everyone had some type of loss, some really tough ones, and then loss of loved ones, as well as just loss of familiarity, loss of your socialization and so yes I think that now we do talk more about it and maybe we'll have more answers as we continue to keep these topics in the mainstream and doing a podcast like yours where we try to figure out what what is it what's what's going on is it is it more is it more simple than we think is it more way more difficult than we think and and again I always go back to he did some heavy drugs
3: for a long time
4: and we don't know that that didn't alter his brain Mm -hmm. either and make Mm -hmm. him even more addicted to, to life to pain the pain of life you know and he has one of those he's got that pattern of life where he's he had joy he had highs he had lows he had Pain and joy and all all ebbs and flows of it, and that's really what life is. His were just much more of an extreme
0: right. My last question to you would be, and if this is an unfair question, just you know tell me right up front, but let's say any time in this last couple of years or what have you, you know when he seemed to be on this downward spiral, if you had the opportunity to intersect with them because you shared a mutual friend or somebody recommended you or what have you. Do you think there'd be anything you could have done to help him?
4: Oh, that's a good question. And that gave me the chills. You
0: know, after he left his, uh, his second wife and who knows, I don't know when he actually met this, uh, his other girlfriend, Azia. Argento, I mean, I don't know what he was doing in that interim period, but obviously he was busy breaking all the china, basically, mm-hmm. yep. in his life. So, and, and if you had, so whether that was loss or et cetera or whatever, do you think you could you could do that? I mean, we're going to put the suicide prevention hotline in the liner notes of this episode, but uh, what can be done? You know, when you, when you see, okay, this guy is going – down the wrong road and you would be able to it would probably just jump right out at you like a friend might be white make excuses for him right mm-hmm. and say oh yeah yeah you know he's just run down man he's got this tough job he's on the road 250 days a year blah 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 he's 60 years old but I, I mean you might just look at him and say okay that guy needs help man yes
4: yes and I you know where I would go back to is in 2010 when he was driving down the road like that. I would have to jump in at that point if I was a good friend of his or if a friend of mine said, Maureen, <laughs> I'm not a therapist or a counselor or anything, so I would have to give him to some professional psychoanalyst if, if he needed that help. But if he was going through, he said, I'm, I feel like I'm in grief. And he came to me and I was coaching him. Absolutely. I would just start asking him a whole lot of questions like, what what gets into your head that would make you want to do this? Why? what, What are you experiencing? I mean, as a coach, we don't go really backwards in time. We really try to stay right now. What is going on? And how can I help you in this moment? And but it's still give it's still putting the work and some action items on the client. So, you know, for example, for grieving, people will come and and just really get emotional and it gives them that safe space because a lot of times in our society, you know, "Eh, we don't really want you crying at work. You know, I don't care how bad it is. That- <laughs> and I think I think Sorry. companies are getting better about that too. But sometimes it's just having that outlet to express themselves. And so I would think that if it was an Anthony Bourdain, I feel like he would end up being open because I feel like he was an open person. And if he had a, a place to talk to someone that he felt, okay, I trust this person. Ugh. And I think some of that stuff may may come out that way. And, I, and maybe he had gone into therapy. I think he probably would have brought that up though because he seemed like very vocal about all of his stuff. But um, I'm sure when he went through some of the, whether he went into rehab, they do a lot of that very deep work. But sometimes you need it. For a lot of periods of your life, and as we've heard today on the podcast, I mean, he went up and down, roller coaster, and he probably needed somebody for all of those moments. He never went to rehab.
0: When he got off drugs initially, he did it all by himself. He never went to an institution. That's what he says. Now, maybe he was secretly doing it and he's in denial or something, but that's what he says. He just... Because there's a whole, I think in that documentary, one of his friends, like, um, I forget, uh, it's like an Asian famous painter, whatever. He was like, because he was a heroin addict too. And he said, how did you do it without rehab?
4: Yes, you're right. You're right. And it, it is amazing when people can just say No more. I'm not doing it anymore. That is willpower. And that goes back to some of the things that make him so special. You know, his passion, his compassion, his loyalty. Maybe he would, in those moments, have a loyalty to himself or a loyalty to someone in his life. I'm not going to do this anymore. But it is fascinating.
0: Well, I think we've probably... Hopefully, we've given our listeners a lot more insight about Mr. Bourdain and and what happened. And I'm very happy that you were able to join us, Maureen. I think you were a fantastic addition to this. So thank you again. Good luck, everybody. By the way, so we say in the front about your podcast, make sure to keep your ears and eyes open for Maureen's own podcast, Giving Grief a Voice, which will be premiering very soon yes
4: thank you you. thanks so much thad
0: well we're scattering the ashes on this episode folks i want to thank again our amazing guest maureen desmond if you or anyone you are close to wish to reach maureen for her grief consulting services we've included her information in the liner notes of this episode all you have to do is tap or click on one of those links And if you or someone you know is considering suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, which in numbers is 8255. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top, rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you. You can reach us online at ScandalSheetPod.com, Facebook, or Twitter. Or just send us an email to contact at ScandalSheetPod.com. We'll see you next time on Scandal Sheets.
2: Copyright 2021. Thad Lee Media. All rights reserved.